This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Alexandra Horwitz, who is an adjunct associate professor of psychology at Barnard College, Columbia University. She's the author of On Looking, Eleven Walks with Expert Eyes and Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know. Alexandra, welcome to Berkeley. Thanks, Harry. Uh, Where were you born and raised? I was born in Philadelphia, and I mostly grew up in Colorado. My father moved out to Colorado, and so I was a quasi-Westerner early Mm -hmm. on. And looking back, how did your parents influence your thinking about the world? Oh, a lot. Mm -hmm. Both my parents were trained as uh, attorneys. My dad still practices, and I think they have a very analytical approach to problem-solving, to thinking, that was instilled in me from a pretty early age. And, and what was the conversation like at the dinner table about world event, events, about science, about what, or about the law? Well, in some ways, I think it was sometimes about the law, actually. Yeah. We talked about the law a fair amount, and that was pretty intriguing because there's a process, and I was interested in understanding the process and seeing that you could come to an end of a process. Um, but also just about ordinary things, what happened in the day and, and really analyzing what happened in our days or a social interaction or, you know, not just reporting, but also kind of ruminating on, on what it was. So we could have a long conversation about, you know, a, a one little incident that happened at the grocery store, at school, or um, walking the dog. And, and when did you acquire your first dog, if acquire is the white word? Right, I know. Ownership uh, is a fraught yeah, question. That's, that, that's, <laughs> so w- when did you... When At that time, we were all owners, though, yeah, right? Yes, um, yes, yeah. And our family lived with dogs as long as I remember. I think from the mm-hmm. time I was very young, we had a dog. I, I, my first dog I remember was maybe a dog named Heidi when I was six. And then I grew up with the dog. And even in college, I maybe had a year or two in college where I didn't live with the dog. And then I had um, dogs in college. So I actually have always lived with dogs. When, when you were younger and, and uh, the family uh, ha- had a dog, uh, did you find yourself observing them? I mean, were you a, a, a scientist in becoming at that point? Or was just the friendship relationship? I don't think I... I don't remember being scientific in my approach to the Mm -hmm. dog um, at all. I think what I had was a sensitivity to animals and and plants, actually. I think I was just um, kind of worried about their experience or what was happening with them. And um, not to say I couldn't forget. I wasn't that sensitive a kid. Um, Mm. But I, I wasn't analyzing them. I just wanted to be assured of their well-being. Um, and that, that I can remember from very early age. Mm-hmm. And and so when did when what were your first steps towards science? Was that when you went to college or even mm. before then? I I had interest in science, but not behavioral science exactly. You know, I was very interested in physics, and I, um, again, I liked I liked a, an iterative process that led to a, a result. That so that's very satisfying in math and in science as a secondary school student. In college, I got very interested in philosophy, and it 
it actually diverted me from science a little bit, um, but was ultimately, I think, frustrating for that reason, wanting to come to a kind of end point or at least periodic tentative end points that science allows you to progress through. So it wasn't until after um, I got, I earned my BA and I was working and away from academics that I started thinking that I'd like to know more about some of these topics that I had just forgotten about, you know, mm-hmm. in, pursuing, in pursuing philosophy, in particular cognition. And so that's when I started taking classes, and I, and I wound up applying to a Ph.D. program. Mm-hmm. And where did you do your Ph.D.? At, at University of California, San Diego, mm-hmm. in the cognitive science department. And, and, and that, that so, so you're, you're a, a cognitive psychologist, as you, but are you also a zoologist and a, a, a person well, or... Well, you could almost say that. I mean, in a way, you get to be a little bit of a, a jack-of-all-trades as a cognitive scientist because the field itself was um, formed by philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists and anthropologists and computer scientists who were all realizing that they were asking similar questions, just approaching it in a different way, right? Artificial intelligence wants to know about the brain, and, that, and neuroscientists wants to, want to know whether their ideas of the brain could be mapped, uh, programmed, and and then there are observers of behavior, and then there are testers of behavior, and so forth. So um, from that uh, position, um, I could uh, I could be called any one of those things a little bit. I guess I'm never called as a neuroscientist or computer scientist, mm-hmm. but I, I started studying animal behavior and, and became a little bit of what I would call a cognitive ethologist, right? Somebody who's looking at animal behavior naturally and observing and then trying to make inferences about cognition. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, at, at San Diego, uh, were there any particular people that you work with? Who, who did you do your dissertation on? And then mm-hmm. uh, how, how did you come to this, this focus on dogs? I came to the focus on dogs a little bit accidentally. So mm-hmm. I, was inter- I did start to get interested in animal cognition and in what kind of inferences we can make about anim- non-human animal minds. And I was doing research with people who were studying the cognitive behavior of animals, of bonobos, for instance, or the social behavior um, of animals. I, looked, I, did, I joined a, a rhinoceros observation research project at the Wild Animal Park under Ron Swaysgood. Um, but then I got interested in dogs because I was interested in the topic of play as a hmm. natural behavior, which is so interesting in human development and what might let us see something that allow us to make some inference about what the dogs understand or know. Um, and so you'd look for a playing animal. And nobody I knew there was studying an animal who was playing all the time. You know, you could, you could go and watch the bonobos and they play once in a while or they go and off in the private area of the enclosure and they play and you don't see them. Um, but I realized that I was, I was watching play three times a day. You know, I had a dog and I was going out and watching play. <laughs> And so I got interested in studying dogs, and there was no one studying dogs at mm. UC San Diego, at least not in this way. And, but Mark Beckoff, who was um, at UC Boulder in Colorado, has studied dogs as a biologist for a long time. And I got in touch with him and really learned distance from him how to look at dog behavior. And then at UC San Diego, Shirley Strum in the anthropology department, who studies baboons, um, took me under her wing as to help me um, refine my ethology technique. And Jeff Ellman, who was just somebody who could do anything, a kind of of renaissance intellect in the cognitive science department, 
took me on kind of intellectually. So I had these, a distant mentor in Mark Beckoff, and then Shirley Strum and Jeff Elman were my committee chairs. Well, I, I can't help asking this. Do you, do you think there was a bias against dog that dogs, in the sense that no, you know, no one at least at San Diego had undertaken, in the sense that we sort of take them for granted? Oh yeah. Oh for sure. There was yeah. there was a huge bias against dogs, and I shared that bias against dogs um, when I when I thought about or somebody might have proposed to me maybe you could study dogs they're playing and I, I really scoffed at the idea first of all you know if you were interested in non-human animal minds you were going to be looking at a primate probably yeah. um, because what primates are non-human primates are going to be the most uh, connected to us and so therefore the ones that have the interesting answers to the questions you want to ask and dogs are so familiar I think I, I've tried to think back on why it could be that dogs were rejected as a cognitive subject in 1996 or something. And um, I think it was just we already had this vocabulary to talk about dogs. And so no one was studying dogs. I remember a, a well-known primatologist coming and visiting um, campus. And I had just started to observe dogs. And I said, gee, I think there's really something. Hmm. This might have been 1998. <laughs> there's something really interesting here. And would you you know, what do you think about this? And he really laughed at that idea. And um, now he and many others are studying dogs, you know. It's, a really, it's really exploded as an interesting research topic. And I think a lot of people have that realization right at the same time in different parts of the world. Uh, there's a big group in Hungary, for instance, that was studying dogs. And, and is, it, is it the case that, uh, I mean, I, I don't think your research has gone there yet, but that Dogs, in a way, and our closeness to dogs could could tell us really something about humans, basically, yeah. in, in the sense of the the interaction between the two dogs and humans. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Insofar as you know, they they are in many ways reflecting the process of our ancestors for some thousands of years. Um, we they reflect our selection of them. Right? We mm. might have chosen and decided to breed. Um, intentionally or not, those animals that had traits that were most familiar or pleasing or recognizable, you know, reflected us, mirrored us in some way. And so it, they're a demonstration of what we think is important in a companion in mm -hmm. some ways. And I think that makes them good companion animals and such easy companion animals. So uh, uh, there is a lot of interesting research, I think, which is comparative in that sense. I'm more interested in the dog qua dog um, but yeah, they reflect back on us, certainly. Have you ever thought of a comparison between dogs and cats, basically, in the sense that <laughs> they're very different? But as domesticated it, creatures, yeah, yeah, right. as domesticated creatures, yeah. Right. right, and the selection process must have been much different for cats. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because maybe you're starting with a, a, a really different species uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't have the same kind of sociality and intera interactions in their groups mm -hmm. as, as the proto-dog or the ancestor wolf did in theirs. Um, but also they're much, they're much less willing subjects. <laughs> cats. <laughs> so that's probably limited. There's probably a bias against cat cognition research because the cats, you know, just won't walk into the laboratory with you. So what did you wind up doing your dissertation on then? I did it on the behaviors of theory of mind, um, mm. this metacognitive meta concept that we apply to humans um, and a kind of case study of dogs at play. So 
dyadic interactions between dogs, um, rough and tumble play. So I was mm -hmm. assessing that play behavior and seeing if there was anything that looked like it was a precursor to or a rudimentary understanding of others' minds. Others being... Dogs. Dogs, yeah. 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 Oh, other dogs. Right, other yeah. dogs' minds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, I like to ask my guests what they see as the skills involved in, in, in what you do and, mm -hmm. and how do you train to acquire those skills. I think for my research, it's mostly about um, patience and observation. Um, a lot of my research has to do with wa watching. And um, that's, somehow that's a kind of attention skill that um, we don't develop that much in, in normal schooling, I think. Not just seeing, but really observing. And one way that's easier to do that is observing through video playback. So you videotape a lot of episodes of a behavior and then you watch it in slow motion and you start seeing something different happening. Um, and so that's, also, that's where patience really comes in. I mean, watching dogs play is, is great fun, but the science of it only happens when you're watching a 30th of a second of a at a time of that, of that video playback, which is extremely tedious, mm -hmm. you know, and, and writing sequential behaviors down. So um, a 30-second playbout might, might take hours to code effectively. And so you'll have to be interested in observation, um, and then you have to be very patient to deconstruct it. And when you say code, explain to our audience what you mean by that. So any behavior, um, any anthropologist or ethologist would be interested in... Um, uh, finding out the, the parts of that behavior. We might say an interview is happening here, but what, what constitutes that interview? And, and there are various levels at which you could describe this behavior that's happening between us. Um, and we choose some level. Um, we're not interested in finger movements or, or limb extensions, but instead maybe we're interested in the conversation. And a code would be making a representation such that... Um, you could look at lots of different instances of conversations and see if there are patterns that are similar across those coded behaviors. And and in the in the case of a dog who, when you come to the study of the dog, there isn't an enormous literature that that this this breakdown becomes. There's just an awful lot going on that it's only through this kind of careful observation uh, that you can see that. Right. I, mean, I think that we see play, for instance, in dogs as a unitary behavior. It's just, it just right, they're playing, and then that's kind of the end of the assessment of what's happening. But you could break it down into smaller components. You could look at how they're using each other's attention when they're communicating. Um, you could look at dominance, submissive behaviors. There are lots of ways you could do it. And I used an ethogram, a list of behaviors, to code the, research, the behaviors I was looking at from from Mark Beckoff and other people who had studied dog behavior, and also from people who had studied other animal behavior. So ethologists all use each other's ethograms to get ideas about what are the kinds of behaviors we might see in this animal. Um, and now there are pretty exhaustive lists of ethograms of different animals' behaviors. So, so in a way, it, it becomes like uh, reading encrypted uh, conversations between humans. In other words, what, once you break the encryption, 
you know, there, there's a whole conversation going on, whether between dogs or between dogs and humans. Right, that make the conversation work, right, or that make the play work, the, the constituent elements. Um, now, your analogy only breaks down insofar as that doesn't mean we suddenly understand its meaning all the time. No, no, but we no. certainly have um, analyzed it at a different level, and so we might have gained another appreciation for, for instance, how dogs use turn-taking, um, in play, at, even if we don't then understand play, and and it, it's it, you're, you're, so you're really exposing the complexity, uh, yeah. which which might be an entry entry point to other form other complexities in the relationship of the dogs to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got interested in play because it's because it's um, a context in which it's possible that in humans we learn a lot of. Um, understanding of others. So by, by playing with this real pretend distinction early in childhood, we might start realizing, oh, there's more than one way to view this you know, banana I'm holding up to my ear. It's not just a banana, but it's also a phone. And, that, and then, oh, that person in front of me might not know the things I do. They know something else. It seems to be part of that development. So one wonders if one looks at play in other species, if they're also based on something, an understanding that the dogs would use in other contexts, which is of another animal's perspective, that they know or believe or think different things than that dog believes. What other qualities of, of temperament besides patient? It sounds mm -hmm. like there's a lot of empathy, really. Is, is that For me, that definitely was a ground, grounding for my interest in looking at animals. Right, and I probably I think that's probably the case for a lot of other animal behavior researchers. Um, and you know, a, a, um, a, a real sense of connection with a non-human animal um, of any kind, and an, and an interest, a curiosity about other animals, and desire to not just put a have a simple answer as to what the animal is doing and what the animal is feeling, but to really analyze their behavior before jumping to any conclusion. Now, what, what was your goal in writing the inside of, of the dog? Obviously, in part, it was reporting on, on your research. Mm. But beyond that, were there other goals involved here? You know, I was then a dog researcher. I had gotten interested in the dog as the dog as opposed to just as this theory of mind entry into non-human animal minds. And I lived with dogs. And w one of my interests was in that tension, being a scientist of dogs and also an, uh, an owner of or liver with dogs. And how we have two different approaches to the dog. So I was wearing kind of two different hats all the time. You know, I, um, the ways you deal with a dog in your house and the ways we looked at dogs analytically and an interest to bring and bringing the, the latter to the former, not just for me, but for other owners, and saying, ah, oh, well, what are, you know, these are questions we form about our dogs. Um, what do they know? What are they thinking? What do they understand? What do they think of me? People would always ask me, what, do, what does my dog think of me? And is there anything I could bring from my approach or the, my results or the other dog researchers' results to, at, to date, which would bear on those questions? So, you know, it's realizing that there's a universe of people who live with dogs, who have questions about them, and that now there's this science that wasn't that well reported on at that point, um, which would be fascinating to them. 
Mm-hmm. What what is in your work? What what is creativity? Look like. I mean, what what can you tell us about a aha moment where where you suddenly came on something that was really surprising for you? Say in the area of play, or well, it was. I guess I have a p- couple of possibilities that yeah. leaped to my mind. One was even finding out about the possibility of dogs as a cognitive subject, mm-hmm. and that happened through reading Mark. Beckoff and um, Colin Allen's book, Species of Mind. And I I distinctly remember Mark, who was studying the behavior of dogs in in play, um, made a suggestion that maybe there's something um, about uh, shared intentionality, understanding of intentionality in these play bows that they do, the play signals, which seem to to be something like, request for play or an announcement that I'm about to play with you and, and precede play and, and continue throughout play and are very important for play. And so, so he just made the suggestion that there was something metacognitive, basically, about the dog's very simple act of, you know, going down on their front legs with their rump high in the air and wagging their tail. And that was extreme. That moment was really inspiring because I was very interested in the metacognitive aspects or possibilities in non-human animal minds. You know, are they thinking about thinking? Are they thinking about others thinking? And here somebody was saying a very simple behavior, if you look at the context, might be connected to that. So I thought, whoa, that, I've, I've got to look at that. And that's really what I then spent, you know, two years of research looking at. <laughs> so that was a big moment. Um, and I also think when I was, before I started writing this book and I got interested in more of how the science could elucidate the experience of the dog. I was reading other biologists and came across Jakob von Oekskull, who is, it was influential in, at some, in some uh, areas of animal behavior research, but had kind of fallen out of the popular literature. He wasn't really in favor, I guess, by the, you know, um, 20 years ago. Um, in animal behavior research. You didn't see his, hear his name a lot, but he had this idea of the umwelt of the animal that you could imagine the worldview, the soap bubble in which any animal um, existed, um, defined by the things that are important or salient in their environment and their own sensory capacity. And that really tickled me, right? And I realized, oh, he's, giving, he's telling me how to find out what the experience of the dog is which is figure out what's important in their environment from their point of view, watch their behavior to do that, and understand their senses and therefore get a different picture of what they experience in a space. And we can do that, you know. And so that was a big moment, too. And and that's still very influential in my thinking about how to research dog behavior. And and in a way, that, that sort of defines the agenda for your book, and, and I want to walk you through your book, and and uh, you you really uh, uh, identify three broad areas that you want to look at. State what those are, and then I'll walk you through each of them. The sensory areas, well, um, olfaction. That's that's a huge sensory area. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a visual area, um, and who's going to be in their visual space? Um, and I'm not sure what the other third area you're thinking well, of Well, I guess what I meant was the, the overall framework of the book. So it's looking at the, the dog's origins, uh, it's, yes. it's, its sensibility, then their senses, yeah, then yeah, their no, senses no, no. and then their interaction with, with humans. humans. That's true. All right. So 
Right. Absolutely. That's well, how I spell the, the book. It no, that's be, great. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody reads it a different way. <laughs> yeah. That is all in there. Um, right. So who, where does this dog come from? Mm. Um, who is the dog? And then what, what are their sensory capacities, perceptual experiences? And then um, Interaction. humans, you know, yeah. and what do they see of us and how have we influenced their biology and um, the interaction and the bond. So, so let's begin with the origins. They they come uh, their origins in, is in the family of wolves, I guess you would say. So, but we don't think about uh, uh, having a wolf in our house these days. Right. So, so the, and I don't the, think there's any atavistic possibility that the dog yeah, is going to become the wolf yeah. again. Yeah. Right. Right. Maybe on television, but <laughs> That's we'll, right. we'll leave that aside. But so, so what? Uh, uh, talk a little about that because what? What? As I read your book, what? What you're saying basically is, it, it it drew some positive things from coming from that line. But on the other hand, there, there were major changes in its evolution. So, so, right. so, what is it about a wolf that that uh, uh, could be the starting point for a dog? Well, I'll say, first of all, that the, I think the domestication story is still um, unfolding, right? There's still people who are trying to and, and uh, claim to find the earliest examples of the divergence between the, the early canid ancestor, a kind of wolf, and, and dogs. Um, and it might have happened in multiple places. But it looks like at some point, I think one of the best theories is, the, is really Ray Coppinger's theory, which is that dogs um, or proto-dogs, some wolves kind of self-selected right about when humans were becoming less um, nomadic and having settlements. And uh, with any settlement, you kind of create trash outside of your settlement, you know, the food that goes uneaten, the the early dumps. Um, and, And some wolves might have already a social species felt less wary of this animal in their environment and approach this new food source, a new ecological niche, basically, that we created um, inadvertently, and therefore came into closer proximity with these early humans and, um, and then might have started to be taken in by us. And maybe because some of them were appealing to us as puppies, maybe partly for food, something like that. And then artificial selection started after that. So this was a species, and I want to make clear, it wasn't today's wolf, right? It's some ancestor of today's wolf. So we look at the wolf today and we think, well, that's the dog came from that wolf. But of course, that wolf has also evolved over thousands of years um, from this common ancestor. Some early wolf must have had a reduction in reactivity to humans and felt less fearful um, and therefore allowed for the possibility that they would, we could come into interaction. And we created um, an environmental scenario that encouraged the possibility of that interaction. And, you know, then some spark happened between us. And, and, and you're, you're, you're saying that uh, wolves, uh, uh, the, these ancestor wolves, brought to the table characteristics uh, that that were useful for this transition that that helped make it possible, and 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 you describe the relationship of the wolf to his own pack, uh, and then the the adaptation and flexibility of the the ancestor wolf 
in in its original setting. Right. So the, do- the wolves are are social already. They live in social groups, and these are packs, and these are really family units. Um, so that's already mirroring, as you know, happens with other social mammals too. But that's already mirroring something about us. We're living in extended family units, and so are wolves. And the um, alpha pair are really the eldest of this family. And so that's a very tight-knit group. They're somewhat territorial, but extremely affiliative with each other. And so that makes them um, mirror, in some way, the kind of human social relationship that we have now and that we've always had. And so if only we could start to see each other as kind of conspecifics, and they have some flexibility um, in that, at least the dogs that we've uh, um, selected do, then we could interweave in each other's families. So they must have had some early developmental flexibility such that the difference between wolves and dogs now is that dogs have a much longer sort of sensitive period where they could be exposed to other species and view them as conspecifics, as, as you know, as essentially part of their own family. Wolves are shorter, but there must have been some ex- sufficient extension in those early self-selecting wolves so that they could come to accept a human. And, and uh, you, you, you say that in, in the book that, it, that it's really a difference in how long it takes for the baby dog or wolf to open their eyes, which then, in, uh, with, in the case of the dog, there's a longer period uh, which uh, is, is, a, is a threshold or a starting point for uh, uh, feeling affection for something other than a, another dog or the, the mother dog, but they could extend it to a different species. Right, essentially a, a sensitive period or a critical, it yeah. used to be called a critical period um, if you're talking about um, some species of very regimented early window uh, for um, social exposure or for hearing sounds of other, of their species and so forth. It's critical period. If it's a little bit looser, it's a sensitive period. So some lo- broader sensitive window um, in the dog eventually than in the wolf. Um, you know, Conrad Lorenz discovered this idea of, or popularized the idea of the critical period, and he famously exposed himself uh, I mean that in the most literal way, uh, not in the extended way, but he he uh, removed some goslings from their mother, and he was the first individual those goslings saw, and they imprinted on him, right? So that's a kind of flexibility that lots of animals have that is whoever the first creature is you see, that's the one you attach yourself to and mimic and you're going to rely on. Um, but it's a very brief window for geese, and so, so the broader window for some mammals. Mm-hmm. Now, now let's talk about the the what's inside the dog. It's its senses, its sensibility, and so on. And and what what is the most important thing that we need uh, to know about its senses? Which is the most important? I think everyone knows at some level that the dog is a, an olfactory creature, but um, they are entirely olfactory, you know, it's not that they don't have other senses, but as we are visual creatures, and as most of our experiences at this moment are experiences of images, not so much smells, and not so much, oh, it's hearing, of course, but not um, primarily our overarching experiences visual, 
um, they are olfactory. And so that's, to, to then really loiter in that fact for a while and sit and steep in it mm-hmm. and think about what it would be like to be an olfactory creature whose experience of this room would not be of the sights, but instead of places where smells are coming from or smells that are here from pasts, past guests and past, past passers-by and so forth. Um, I think that's transformative to think of the dog that way. So they're not the only olfactory creature, but they're the only one living in our homes, <laughs> as it were. And so uh, that's manifest in a number of ways. You know, they have um, much, many, many millions more olfactory receptors, which gives them exponentially greater sensitivity to the presence of any smell than we would have. Um, they have a sophisticated method of sniffing, so that just as we don't um, get inured to a, something we're looking at or staring at, they can keep smelling it, smelling, inhaling, without um, kind of exhaling the smell out of their nose. In fact, their exhales kind of help their inhales. You know, they have this secondary olfactory-like organ called the vomeronasal organ in the, in the hard palate of the roof of the mouth to allow smelling um, hormones, uh, emitted hormones, obviously functionally adaptive to deal with other members of their species, but also presumably they're able to detect the hormones that we're always giving off, um, pheromones, we would call it. Um, so they're entirely organized around smell, and, it's not, and their vision is perfectly good. But I think that's the thing to realize when trying to imagine, if one is really interested in imagining the dog's point of view, is um, that when you step out into the street and this world just appears for us, the way, it, however it appears, their world is appearing to them as the smells passing on the breeze or whatever smells underfoot or is left on that lamppost. Mm-hmm. And, and in using this, this smell uh, uh, strength, so to speak, uh, they're acquiring information, basically. So, so we, we, what you're saying is we need to think of it in that way because they, they are learning about their environment, the people in the environment uh, uh, through that, and, and they're decoding the information. That's right. I, mean, I think that when we're using vision, we're getting information too, right? And we think of smells, I think. It's hard for us to imagine being olfactory creatures because we um, assign smells a quality. You know, it's like a good smell or a bad smell, and maybe their identities. And there are some people who are very good at recognizing what the smells are. But mostly we, we just kind of think, well, there's a set of smells we like and a set of smells we don't like. But we think of vision as giving us information about the world. Oh, this is where I am. This is who is here. This is what happened. I might see some sign that somebody was here before. And I think that's exactly how they're drawing a picture of their space with olfaction. So it's not laden with, is this a good or bad smell? It's whose smell is that? And what information is there in the urine that's been that's splattered this hydrant about the urinator and her health and her sexual status and... Uh, maybe her stress hormone level. I don't know. I mean, they're, I'm not exactly sure what they could experience, but they have the capacity to pull out all that bits of information. And so about humans as well, who pass by, you know, hence the effectiveness of trackers who, they don't need a footstep, you know, they just need somebody having kind of sloughed mm-hmm. our smell in, in, their, in our wake as we run away for the dog to detect that we were there sometime in the past. So they, you know, yeah. they might even be sort of smelling time, 
because they're, the difference between a, a strong odor and a weak odor is really um, uh, uh, when it was laid. You know, mm. So strong odor means somebody passed more recently. So mm. they, it is entirely information. And, yes. and you, you, you talk a little about uh, this whole question of whether dogs can tell whether their, uh, their companion is ill, basically, their human companion uh, has a disease and so on. Sure, and, and it's, there's no reason that the dog wouldn't be able to smell that. I mean, any diseased uh, cells uh, give off a very distinctive smell. I mean, doctors used to be trained in, uh, reliably trained in um, s the smells of diseases, you know, I think tuberculosis or something like sort of a brown bread smell. So instead of just getting a blood test from you, you know, a doctor might come over and just see if you're giving off a smell that would be informative about you, right? Not good mm -hmm. or bad, but informative. And so we're giving off those smells. And we know that dogs can then detect, you know, uh, the changes of tissue wrought by cancer, for instance, because dogs are easily trained, and, and many have been trained, to alert to um, uh, cancerous cells in whatever the substrate on a on a body, if it's a melanoma or in urine, if it's bladder cancer, you're trying to detect, or um, in in breath, if it's lung cancer. So they are detecting them now. That doesn't mean that everybody's dog is looking for illness in their owner, right? But my guess is that they might notice it, and then if we ask them, trained them to tell us, and we knew what they're telling us looked like then they could also tell us about it. And, and do they compute, in other words, do they, is there evidence that they can combine their affection for someone with this detection of disease to then try to alert the person? I mean, that would be different than just smelling a bunch of people that they don't know for disease. Right. So you could be trained on an odor or a component of, um, a component inherent in a cancer, for instance. Um, and that's what the dogs who are trained to do this uh, do. And so your question is really sort of, does familiarity breed a kind of smell understanding such that if there's a violation of that, smell oh, the, understanding, yeah. a change, yeah. wrought by an illness, a dog would detect it and be able to to tell you about it, essentially. Yeah, and because I, of their affection for yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess I, I was translating affection as familiarity, but it, because I'm yeah. just trying to, to say, um, well, why would they be affectionate? Because if they have a relationship yeah, with you, right, you know, yeah. they're familiar. Presumably so, yes. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, the answer would be, of, of course, they um, will notice the difference um, if there is a difference to be noted. But I still think it's a big you know, then you have to notice that they're noticing, which is a hard thing for us to do, given that, you know, we live among dogs and we notice very little of their behavior, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned, mm. um, in the ordinary course. We aren't really looking and trying to understand what they're doing by watching them. We're kind of putting an understanding on them and then assuming they live up to it. So I don't think we would notice they're noticing. The, the, uh, interestingly, do, do, do these olfactory uh, sensibilities... Uh, uh, obviously they must apply to other dogs, not just to humans. So th this is sort of key to uh, their ability to play, choosing their playmates, 
uh, to the extent that they're not chosen for them. Is, is that right. correct? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so th- this this sensibility is at work and play. Sure, I think in any social interaction with yeah. other dogs, right, and determining how you know if it's a competitive scenario and there's food or attention being doled out, you could use information about the health um, or age of another dog to make a decision about whether you're stronger or more likely to get that attention or if this is a good, well-matched playmate and so forth. You, uh, you uh, compare the dog to their wolf ancestors and uh, th- there's, there, you, you discern a, a difference in the intelligence or the kind of intelligence that a dog has. Uh, uh, I think you say wolves are better at working at puzzles uh, whereas the dog is more uh, uh, some uh, a creature that relates to the other to get information, talk a little about that because uh, 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 this is a and, and I think you then also discuss the notion of working on objects mm. basically uh, talk a little about that R- how they is- use this, their senses to deal with their environment beyond right. just being an observer of it. These, there are a lot of types of tasks that would be put to a dog or any other animal in, in a kind of comparative psychology approach. And there's a lot of research. This is not my research, but research of others looking at really their physical cognition skills, which would be kind of the problem-solving skills for the most part, and then social cognition skills, which would be problem-solving that involves other individuals. And so wolves um, and dogs put to the same physical cognition tasks um, perform quite differently with wolves usually surpassing dogs if you, if you want to talk about who's the better performer. So a nice test is a kind of impossible box task where, um, a, a, let's say there's a, a piece of rope that's attached to meat and that's secreted inside a box and the animal has to learn to pull the rope and get the meat. And both wolves and dogs can do this, but then if it's impossible to open, you know, pull it and you can't get the box open, it's really well fastened you know, the wolf will really go at that task and they will figure out a way or they will, you know, die trying essentially to get inside. They're intense on it. And a dog, alternately, will go at it a little bit and then usually, typically, the average dog, if there is such a thing, um, gives up, you know. And then they do something very interesting, which is the social cognitive part, which is to say they look to the person... (laughs) who, incidentally, is the one almost always solving problems for dogs. You know, if my dog wants to um, have food, she doesn't, go, he doesn't, she doesn't go forage for food or try to discover it on her own. She just comes to me, mm-hmm. and voila, you know, I am the one who solves that problem every time. And so dogs seem to be very good at using us as the kind of tool to solve any problem. But they're sort of failing the physical cognition test so that's an interesting reason that maybe some comparative psychology methods and the answers you traditionally say they give don't work as well for dogs. You know, they, they've failed the task, but they've also really succeeded because they've got a much better tool. They don't have to go at that until they die. They can just pester the person, and the person's probably going to help them solve the puzzle. Um, and so then that's the social cognition part, and they perform much better than wolves. One of the methodologies that has, for some reason, really hit it off. Um, uh, and a lot of different researchers in this field have studied it as, as like dog success of following points um, or gaze. And they're very good.
good at that, much, much better than wolves for the most part, unless wolves have lived among humans, um, or, and even better than chimps, so better than our closest relatives. And that seems so automatic, right? They, you point someplace, and the dog kind of knows that that's something there. But a chimp, when you point, you know, will look at the end of your finger, not at the place which humans say we're, we're obviously intending, that place over there on the floor, not this thing that I'm using as an information. Um, and dogs seem to get this very early on, given the right development. And so that's an interesting skill that allows them to get all sorts of information from us. Um, they can follow our gaze this way. Um, and it also means they're looking at our faces a lot, which incidentally, hmm. um, I think is, is greatly implicated in our humans' feelings that dogs really understand us, that we're really in a conversation together. Because guess what? They just look at us. You know, I think they're probably smelling more than looking, but they're directed toward us just as in a conversation. Um, so they really succeed at social cognitive casts. And the wolves are less good at that, probably because they're less trained at... Um, yeah, less driven to look at a face, you know, non... Most Which they animals, don't do, you, you said. Yeah. They don't typically do that. If they're yeah. not exposed to humans, eye contact, you know, prolonged eye contact would not be tolerated. That's, that's really a threat. Not, you know, you wouldn't want to go up to a wolf and just stare at them. And also, just same with <laughs> the dog you don't know, for instance, but the dog you do know, you might just sit there and gaze at each other, and that really feels like it's the basis for an understanding. And other animals don't do that. They, mm -hmm. they use gaze as threats. So wolves won't really look us in the face for a long period. They were not, they're not getting information from our gaze and from our points. And so they're going to fail at those social cognitive tasks relative to dogs. So, so what, what you're describing is, is a real uh, justification for your point uh, of the book, which is to get into the umwelt of the dog, because if you were if you were doing intelligence testing, you might conclude, well, the dog is a dummy. But right. but what you're saying is no, you got to look at the context, which is that that they are a social animal, whereas a wolf is is really only social within its own pack. Yeah, they're so social with us, um, and that's their real skill. Uh, and I think. Uh, understanding the dog's perspective there is that the dog has social world has extended to include the human, um, and that's quite a skill. Mm -hmm. You 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 look at this relationship between humans and 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 uh, uh, dogs, and and it's almost um, a marriage made in heaven, <laughs> so to speak. And, and and you 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 talk about things that we where the 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 commonality that leads us to meet each other in mm. in 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 this relationship and and one is contact right in other words that both both humans and dogs like to be touched basically yeah uh, you know and i think that and touch is affiliative you know it, it it's affectionate it's mm. um and dogs kind of suffer being touched by us you know i mean they like to be touched they're they'll sleep wolves their relations would sleep together and on top of each other and so forth. But also dogs will seem to endure all sorts of types of touching from us, uh, regardless of it's the if we're family members or not. You know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's very appealing. Um, if you looked just anthropologically, if you watched people go by a, a pet store and how they interacted with the 
inhabitants of that pet store who they'd never met. You know, most people want to touch the animal, right? That's very important for us. And dogs will allow that. That's part of their way of interacting with each other. And and there's a there's a kind of a mutual signaling which I guess you're saying the dog originally got that from the the wolves returning to the pack, uh, but but they've sort of crossed species and so so this whole greeting thing is a big deal in the relationship. Yeah. So when a when a hunting dog returns to his or her pack and um, has made a kill. Um, they really are mobbed by, you know, their pack members. And there is a big greeting, and, it's, and it is a greeting. It's very exciting. And they do all this licking around the face of the returning hunter, and, and that prompts the hunter to regurgitate some of the food for, to share to everybody. And um, it's so interesting to see that same behavior within human homes where you have, you know, we return and our dog comes and jumps at us and licks at our face, and it is just a greeting to us. You know, in fact, we call it a, a kiss. A dog licks your face. People call it kisses, you know, something. And uh, and so then that's the end of our definition of it. And I think it is interesting to go back one step and say, oh, right. And then usually the returning dog would have regurgitated some <laughs> of the food to, to everybody. And we never do, we rarely do that. I don't know that the dog would be unhappy if we did. But so I think it is a greeting, um, but you get some more knowledge about the history of that greeting from looking at their ancestors. And, and when, when this licking, when you come back from a restaurant, I mean, they're, 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 they're gathering information. I mean, they're not yet ready to say, oh, you went to Chez Panisse for dinner while <laughs> right. you left me here. Right. But, but in other words, they, they are absorbing information. Is that information useful for them, or does it just give them security to, to input this information? Well... I mean, look at it this way. If we have information that we've been eating something and the origin of this licking was to provoke sharing of that eating, mm-hmm. then they would, uh, the smell would prompt them to do more and more of it, you know, to try to, as a, as a request, to try to get us to share it with them. So it's informative in that way. Otherwise, I don't think they put it in the, in the bank, you know, and that, then she went out every night and she had pizza five <laughs> right. times and then she right. had Chinese food. But... <laughs> I don't think, but, but certainly it could be, it would have been useful mm-hmm. to get information. Yeah, and, and so all the smelling, you know, and think of all the smells we must pick up, not just of other dogs, as it were, that we might have touched in the world, but just smells that are hitting us from the world as we travel through our environment, which that dog's nose is sensitive to. That's information for them um, about, in some way, about where we've been or who we've been interacting with, and it is, I think, interesting to them. And, and finally, you, you emphasize the timing of the relationship, that, that in other words, which is about what? It, it may well, for sense. instance, the, there is a lot of turn-taking mm-hmm. um, and uh, mutual looking and checking back and looking away, which is very reminiscent, between dog and human, which is very reminiscent of how humans deal with each other in conversation. There's some very nice studies showing that... Um, the sort of bouncing back and forth of actions um, between or gaze between dog and human is very similar to flirting mixed sex strangers behaviors between each other you know so that so they're doing something in interaction with us even without words you know even without the same understanding which is familiar to us which is just 
um, is appealing to us and fits into our model of how you deal with others. And so we slip them right into that category of others. Mm-hmm. You, when we started, you, you mentioned the fact that you were, you were someone who had had companionship with dogs. I won't use the word owner. And so I'm, I'm curious now to look back and ask how you as a, a dog person has informed your science and how your science has informed uh, you as a dog person. Mm. I think uh, living with dogs informed my science by changing the types of questions I ask. You know, I'm very interested in the fact that we have an entire vocabulary. Dog, people who live with dogs have an entire vocabulary to describe their dogs, you know, right from very early living with their dogs, all these anthropomorphisms we put on the dogs about their understanding and what they think and want and what they think of us. And that that functions pretty well, actually. It might not be right, it might be right, but it just functions pretty well for the entirety of that dog's Mm -hmm. life with that person. And um, those aren't the types of questions that comparative psychology usually asks. They ask, you know, do you follow a point, you know, or... Or as I did an approach, you know, does a dog have a kind of theory of mind or a rudimentary theory of mind? And I think those are interesting questions, but I've moved away from those um, a little bit. And I'm, I'm asking more the types of questions about whether the, those words that we use to describe dogs um, when we're living with dogs are, are correct or if there's a better explanation or if there's something where we can get a better understanding of the dog by using different words. And so... I think that's what living with dogs has done to my science. Um, but my science, what the science has done with my, to my living with dogs is, I think, made me a much better owner. And I will use that word. It's just a convenient word, but I don't think of myself as owning mm-hmm. dogs, per se. It just um, explains that relationship. Um, I've become a much better observer. I think I've become a much better, um, much more, much more conscientious person living with dogs and much more sensitive to what the dog might need or desire or want or what the dog's telling me. So, gee, now I understand when the dog is trying to get my attention um, for something important that they need, um, the very few things they ask of us, food or going outside or interaction, much earlier, you know, so I can, you can kind of change the way a dog... Get your attention instead of having to ramp it up until they're barking at you and and annoying you. You can see when they just come and you know touch your knee with their nose as a request, and see ah oh, that you're communicating with me. I'm going to see what you want. Um, that's that's very satisfying. I mean, if the dog is if you're seeing what the dog's saying, that's that's very satisfying. And I also am much more appreciative of letting my dogs smell the world. Right. So we have. I describe in my book to the um, smell walks we take where this whole predefined interaction that we have with dogs where we're going to take them for a walk. Um, you know, everyone knows if you get a dog, you have to take them for walks, right? And, what, and mostly that's about elimination and maybe it's about exercise. But boy, let's say you're a dog who's inside for 20 hours a day um, with maybe nobody to deal with for most of that because people you live with are, are working. Um, what would be great? Going for a walk. Why? Not just so that you can urinate, but also so or see other dogs, which is very important. I think we, everyone agrees on that. But, but also you can smell what the world is like. So, you know, what if we took walks 
where they, every time they wanted to stop and smell and we're pulling up their leashes to, come on, hurry up, we have to take a walk. You know, we realized that's their walk. They're walking. This is what the experience is. And, 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 and letting them enjoy that um, or experience it, whatever it is. And I love that now. I love seeing my dogs do that and, and letting, letting them lift out their noses a little bit. Um, so that's, and that's only since really I started setting dogs that I did that. I didn't know that ahead of time. It was only th through reflecting on their capacity that I realized I should change my way of walking my dog. Well, one of the themes in, in, in this book and in your new book uh, on, uh, uh, I can't remember the... Uh, on Looking. Uh, on Looking, is you, you have a very strong interest in attention, right? And I think you, you say in that second book that, that the whole, our environment really makes us unintentive. Uh, and, and part of what you're interested in is, is how do we regain that attention and, and, and so on. Talk a little about that because it, it's clearly a theme, you know, in the focus that you have on cognition. Yeah, I think you're right, and I, I wouldn't, in cognition, attention is a whole specialty, um, and I never was drawn to that, so it's, it's I think it's a, a meaning, a different type of meaning of attention. I think, now that you mention it, what it, what it, what it is, is um, an interest in looking in a different way at something which is familiar. You know, in some sense, that is a connection between my recent writing and my research and writing about dogs is there is a very familiar thing. We already know about it. You know, maybe some people didn't, psychology didn't even think that the dog was worth studying cognitively because we already know. Um, and oh, here's a, you know, an ordinary block in a city, which is a, a walk I took again and again for, the, for on looking. We already know what's on the block, but we don't need to look. And so we've lost a type of attention to object or scene which um, actually, you know, has a lot of levels of richness um, that we could notice. And I'm, I'm, as opposed to being attracted to the exotic, I think, I'm kind of attracted to getting different perspectives on the ordinary. And so that's, I think that is, the, that's the attention I'm interested in bringing, like a new way of looking at something familiar. And, and so dogs were a good uh, uh, field of study. For you. I think so. Because they, you right? say they're anthropologists of uh, of us and, and their right. world. Yeah, right. And they're looking, you know, they're looking at us in an interesting way. I really admire how well they look at us and observe our behavior. Well, uh, uh, Alexandra, this has been a, a fascinating uh, conversation. Let me show your book again because I, I think it's a it's a great read, and people are going to want to come to it for that reason, but also because of their interest in dogs. Thank you very much for My coming pleasure. on our program. Thanks, Harry. Thank, thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.